uh, I do think the analysis is probably the hardest in the sense that um, I think getting customer access is hard, but you know, like if you can't get customer access, you can't do anything. But I think if, assuming you did get access to customers, analysis is hard. It's, it's generally qualitative analysis. We're not taught how to do it, most of us anyway. I learned from a couple of really good UX people who worked at Cooper and mm -hmm. they they had it like they knew what they were doing. And this is back in 2004 or something. And we did a big research project. And, you know, it's the first time you saw post-it notes on walls and all that stuff. But, um, you know, it takes time, right? Like, I, I don't think spending three months with them taught me how to do it right. But doing it, you know, five times myself, I learned a lot. So I think I think it's a skill that improves over time. But, you know, a lot of times people start doing discovery, they don't really get good results from analysis because they're not really good at it themselves. The company doesn't find any insights like, oh, well, we knew all that, or this isn't valuable or whatever. So you, you end up not being able to improve. Product Growth Leaders proudly presents Product Conversations. I'm Grant Hunter, co-founder of Product Growth Leaders and the host and facilitator for these conversations. On a weekly basis, we explore product management and leadership topics through interactive conversations with our product leader panelists. Conversations that will challenge you to think about your thoughts on the topic and perhaps get you to change your mind. Listen, subscribe, and add your voice to the conversation every week in the Product Growth Leaders community. Hello, everybody. Grant Hunter here with another Product Growth Leaders conversation. Steve, I mean, going back as long as I've been reading Steve Johnson, because I've been reading Steve Johnson in the magazine longer than before I met you, one of the key things that you always kept talking about was the importance of getting out to the market to learn, right? Uh, doing market discovery. And, you know, I was going through the, the backlogs of our, you know, the history, the archives, the catalog of all the stuff we've done. And boy, it's been a long time since we talked about discovery. So I thought it would be a good topic. Any 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 thoughts before we get started? You don't learn to ride a bike by reading a book about it. And it seems to me that most marketers and most and all product owners have no firsthand experience with customers. And so they guess from, you know, I talked to a guy or I read a trouble ticket. And uh, there's nothing that beats a firsthand conversation. Agreed. Uh, I've been saying that for 30 years. <laughs> you, you have been. And you've, got, you've already got Clint doing a, a hallelujah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things in, in talking, even talking to customers, for the most part, they don't know what they want. They may think they know what they want. But as you do your discovery, you're really trying to find out what is the what is their issue? What is, what's the problem that they're trying to solve? So I've been, you know, I used to work for Pitney Bowes, a mailing company. And we had a customer that said, you know, we were talking about we're developing a next generation of product mailing machines. And we said, you know, what, what are features and functions that you could use? He goes, what would really be great would be have a screwdriver attached to the thing with a chain. So when it jams, we can poke it out. And I was like, well, how about the requirement is that it doesn't jam? He's like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. But that's sometimes, that's sometimes the thought process that the customer has. And that's one that yeah. resonates with me after all these years because, 
you know, put a screwdriver in there so we can undo the jams versus, hey, I really need this thing not to jam because it impedes my productivity. Well, and that's yes. one of the great things about market discovery is we can start understanding those, the real problems they have, not the solutions. My favorite, my favorite question after somebody gives me a feature is what will that fix to your point, Clint? So uh, I, we're looking forward to having a great discussion on this. On Monday, we put this question in the community. What are the keys to successful market discovery? May Wong you may not be doing your theses anymore when you write your answers, but still came strong with a really good list of things to do. Presuming that this is a specific act of discovery and not passive, that, you know, talk to me through where your head is. So uh, it's, it's right here. Um. <laughs> come on, man. You, I say that every week. It just took this long for you to get, come back at me like that? Um, <laughs> yeah. So the... Um, I think discovery is a thing that happens all the time, right? Because you, you read about it in continuous discovery. You, we talk about it as a continuous activity. But I think when we talk about market discovery and um, doing it for the purpose of figuring out what to do next, oftentimes I think we want to we want to separate like the background work that we do from an intentional act of discovery. Right. So let's talk about the specific intentional act of discovery. Um, it, you need to limit that. It, it's because it's an intentional act. You can't always just be intentionally doing this discovery for this thing because you still have to deliver at the end of the day, especially when you're a product person. But even when you are a UX researcher, you still need to put some sort of scope around it. So having a scope and a time frame. Um, so that it ends and you have boundaries for what you're working with, um, including as many of your team as possible, uh, ideally one from each group. So generally dev, or if you have multiple dev teams, one from each team, um, UX, uh, other stakeholders, sometimes you need hardware design, sometimes you need operations, whoever it is that are heavily impacted from the, what this problem will solve, or sorry, what the solution will solve, um, you wanna bring them on. Uh, share your findings. That's actually, I think, one of the harder ones. Um, it's not just a presentation because like, if it's something that takes a long time, you're gonna have new people, you're gonna have people leaving, you're gonna have other teams that are impacted. So how do you methodically spread this information out? And the last thing is um, do something about what you learn. Make a decision, share that decision, right? Uh, make sure you make it known that this is what you invested into this discovery and this is what we've learned um, so that someone else doesn't come along and redo all of this work all over again. No, I, I love that. It, you know, I've, I've mentioned uh, a friend and mentor, Frank Tate, and he always took me through a process of discover, understand, and validate. And discover, I think, would align with your passive discovery, right? You're just out there learning. And based on that, you're coming up with ideas. But once you've decided that there's something you want to look into more, that's his understand phase. That's where you bring the team in and you get a little more and you share the results. He, he had his team uh, record them and, and transcribe them and then go through an exercise with the team to sort of do all the stuff together. So. I think it's important that the whole team also gets involved with passive discovery as well, especially along the lines of their domain. Um, however, I think from a organizational operational, what normally happens is that it doesn't actually happen. 
Um, well, so. And that that's on the product manager to engage everybody in passive discovery. They're out there discovering it. Is it getting shared uh, or, or that type of stuff? Danielle, you came in and you said you echo everything that May said and you wanted to add some stuff. Uh, talk me through, you know, your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I did just want to say this is, I think this is one of the most fun discussions that I've been a part of so far. Um, I just really loved how everybody was filling in like, yes, and yes, and so we've got this really lovely list. Um, and I'm very excited to talk about it today. Um, the first point that I had made was making sure that folks are aware and cognizant of different methods and approaches for doing um, market discovery. And so that made me think of Chad. Um, I got to attend one of his master classes oh, a few months ago, um, specifically on interviewing. Um, but it's so important that your teams are well-versed and teed up to conduct whatever types of focus groups, interviews, surveys, you know, whatever it is that they're designing to get this feedback. Um, really important that they're aware of uh, proper technique in there, just so that bias doesn't start to creep in, um, which was my second point, making sure um, that we're aware of our biases that might come into play if we're just kind of going uh, head first <laughs> into market discovery without a really formalized plan or intention. Uh, additionally, I think it's great, like May had mentioned, have a lot of key folks involved. Um, doing that is really important because you're going to have each person hearing and seeing and understanding things from a different lens. Um, so having that documentation and then doing a comparison of your notes towards the end of it will help solidify some of that general consensus or the things that everybody's seeing and hearing, but it also helps you get down into the nuance pieces of it as well. Um, things that you may not consider from a, a technical or architectural perspective, one of your engineering people might bring in. Um, a salesperson or a marketing person might hear something totally different that triggers something in their mind. Um, and then of course, you know, from the product perspective, um, you know, we're hearing and seeing different things as well. Um, I guess four, uh, really important one, uh, but try to remember and try to deeply, deeply embed this in your discovery practices, but I am not the user, um, the golden rule, because again, that is where bias comes into play, um, but it, it gives us this really limited tunnel vision or scope of, of what we're looking for when we take that persona into our discovery efforts. Um, number five, listen more than you talk. Um, I have been in some really bad discovery calls uh, as, a, as a participant. And I, it's like, are you ever going to shut up and let me talk and let me give you my feedback or give you, you know, my information? Um, and so, you know, this is something that I'm very hyper aware of when I do interviews and focus groups. Um, I, I, there's so much I want to say. There's so many different, you know, tangents I could go off on or things I could mention, but it's really important to just let people, just let people talk and guide them back when they need it. But for the most part, kind of let them, just let them free. Um, and then number six, I think this one um, is more of a 
tactical piece, but meeting your market where they're at, there's a lot of barriers to reaching folks. Um, and I'm not just talking about the difficulty of, you know, if you're in a healthcare organization, we're worried about privacy and whatnot. I'm talking about access to phones, computers, internet, um, things like that. So being really mindful of where your market is um, and not just going after the people who might have those immediate things available to them. You know what, that's such a great point because I so often see when I was doing it and, and with clients that, that somebody becomes easy to get to and all of a sudden you get a lens of one because that person is the person that was easy to get to and we need to get to everybody, right? And so let's go find them. Uh, where they are. I, I, I really did uh, love that. And Danielle, I'm going to actually, from you, go out of order. Normally, I go in the order that things came in, but you talked about uh, Chad's masterclass, uh, and, and thankfully, you invited him to join us in the community and on this call. And, I, and Chad, you talked about, uh, I think, echoing some stuff May had talked about, one key is to define your market discovery scope succinctly. Talk to me about your thoughts on how important defining scope is. Yeah, I guess to build on what May was saying, you know, product leaders, they're always faced with so many different questions, so many different problems that they would like to solve or that they're hearing and, and maintaining a backlog, maintaining all that, you know, in their head with their team. And I, you know, what I have found is that if there isn't some sort of real focus on a, a key governing question for some sort of market discovery effort, and like May said, that has a start, middle and end, then the data you get at the end is very diluted. You're not really answering one question really well. You're answering a lot of questions sort of not well, right? Because yeah. you can you can get into that trap of having the N of one. Like you talk to one person about one issue and then you think that's the answer. Then you go to talk to another person about a different issue and you think that's the answer to that question. So, you know, what what I wrote in the in the messaging is, you know, this, this really simple framework called situation, complication, question, hypothesis, SCQH, mm -hmm. and it essentially forces you to define a single governing question that you're really trying to answer with some sort of discovery initiative. And then from there, you can build a list of like supporting questions. And there's a tool called an issue tree that you can use, or you can just build a list. And then a lot of people will also build like an interview guide or a discussion guide with that list of questions. Um, but yeah, it really comes down to not trying to boil the ocean with this, with a particular discovery initiative and, and being purposeful about it. So even what May said, it's like, if you're going to do it, you know, have a, have a start, middle and end, have a purpose, have a defining question, and then bring your whole team into that so that you're, you're focused on that for whatever it is, you know, a month, three months, whatever that time frame is, and then get to the end get an answer or at least some direction and then do something about it. Again, just building on what other people have said here. But yeah, that, that's what I see. Um, you know, it's an early on mistake, right? If, if you're thinking yeah. about a chronology of, of market discovery, you need to nail that in the beginning. And again, there's tons of things you could go out and look for answers for, but you have to, you have to pick one that's important enough to spend your time and your team's time, and then the time of people who are going to respond to you and, and participate in an interview or a focus group or a survey. So you want it to be very focused and, um, you know, very thoughtful. Yeah, actually, I love that idea because when, when I've been building interview guides, I actually like to use the problems we're trying to solve as sort of the outline of it, right? 
sure. the questions come as the sub bullets because I'd rather have somebody focusing on what problem are we trying to solve, what answer are we trying to get, and have that as their context. And the questions are just suggestions that I, I give them. So I, I love that idea of, of giving that scope and having that that framework for it. Uh, thank you, Chad. Uh, Calvin, you said yes and. I did. Yeah, I'm 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 kind of 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 two minds when it comes, especially when it comes to uh, inviting and involving involving other groups. I mean, I think it, in my mind, it really depends on what the problem is to be solved, you know. And and I wouldn't necessarily in, in, invite developers into a, into something where we're thinking more uh, strategically, um, because you know, a developer would tend to try and jump to how we solve the problem as as opposed to really understanding that problem that's to be solved. You know, and at the same time, I've, I've been in situations where, you know, the, the um, you know, developers or IT folks have a preconceived sense of the problem in going out and talking with customers, um, going through um, kind of a, you know, early, you know, early iteration of UX because it happened over 15 years ago um, and, and tracking the customer, they, they switched their, the the viewpoint because they're beginning to see the see it through the eyes of the customer as well you know versus how they perceived it to be so i mean i, so I go back to what i said initially which it is involvement from other groups it really it really depends and and would vary by, vary by situation i do think people need other groups need to be involved i just question who gets involved when and how yeah you know, I always use the example of the double diamonds, right? They have the points touching to each other. Yeah. I really think the points need to be overlapping, right? So the closer you're getting to a commit, a, you know, from your discovery of what problems, that type of stuff, that's where I like to get the other teams involved. We've got a little more, we've got some context. Now it's, we're getting a little more detail. That's when I always have done it. Uh, but I think the key is also getting them engaged in times where it's just in general, right? It's not specific, but they're, they're seeing customers. I had a MBA's leadership course taught by the guy who ran the AS400 line at IBM. And he's the one that turned it around and got them their Malcolm Baldridge Quality Award. And he said the one thing he told uh, Lou Gerstner when, when Lou Gerstner asked him to take it over was, I will only do it if I can take the engineers to customers to see how they use the products and how yeah. they do it. And I think it was a key importance for them outside of discovery in a specific scope of we've been talking a lot about, but just to get them general understanding and empathy for the customer, the user. So yeah. awesome, Calvin. Thank you. Uh, Dominic, you threw me a curveball. Cultural fit. Yeah, I mean, and, and this uh, comes from my, my global experience. <clears throat> uh, so we, we all want to walk with a customer, right? And many times we get told, hey, uh, I don't have the money to do this. I cannot travel over there. And we tend to do one, two, three discoveries and in a certain market, right? Geographical market, uh, take some assumptions and get out with a product. And I think the cultural fit, you know, for me was super important because you cannot assume that a product may work, may um, solve a problem uh, from one region to another or from one market to another, right? So. Being go, going back to what Chad was saying, also being very focused, right? It's one thing, but not making assumptions after that globally it, for me was super important. 
So cultural fit means many, many things, right? I mean, it's in the messaging, it's in uh, the color of the product, it's in the uh, usability of the product, it's, uh, you know, regulations, standards, yeah. right? There's many different ways. So- No, yeah, and I, I think it goes a lot to that scope stuff, right? We need mm -hmm. to scope it out and realize that there are distinct differences in markets and that we may be, you know, just because the discovery in the U.S. says one thing, the discovery in India or China may be different, and we can't just, you know, how it goes back to even naming, right? The Chevy Nova, which meant no go in, in Spanish, right? So many mistakes that that are, are done. So awesome, thank you, Dominic. Said, so good to have you back. I'd love to get your take on this. What are the keys to successful market discovery? Uh, thanks. Um... <laughs> How much time do you have? Uh, I was yeah. about to say you've never been at a loss for words. Let's say. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I'm gonna I'm gonna hit enter because I've been teeing this up. So I wrote a blog post on this a while ago, uh, where I kind of went through the whole thing, and I think everyone's mentioned what I wrote. So that was good to hear. I think the cultural one is an important one because there's companies that just like yeah, you can go off and do research, but if you can't getting anyone to listen, then what's the point, right? Like, you know, if everything's coming from above and no one cares about real market evidence. Um, I think I think the one thing that hasn't been mentioned maybe is is skill and ability, right? So like you, you can have good intentions and maybe you have a culture that wants to listen, but there's so many areas, right? In terms of defining what you're gonna research defining the questions, right? Because the answers you get are based on the questions you ask. And, you know, it's not just about talking to customers, but it's about being focused. Who you talk to, right? Getting access to the right people because it's not just customers. And like you said, just now it varies, right? Like just because you talk to a bunch of people doesn't mean it's Apple, Google everywhere. How you, how you analyze that data, how you extract the insights, how you interpret them, et cetera. Like every step of the way, there's possibility of, of fall off. And so, you, you know, every step away, you have to be diligent about it as much as you can. Um, and I think, I think those all are things that we, we don't realize often. And then of course, someone had mentioned biases. I think mm -hmm. that's a huge one, you know, confirmation bias is the biggest one. Oh yeah. Yeah. Look, they said that, that we agree with that. Let's do that. You know, um, but there's also, you know, recency bias and all these, when I, when I teach clients about about discovery, I have a whole section on 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 cognitive biases to try to help them understand that because it's not it's not something we're taught, right? We're not taught about these things in school or anything, and yet we we live with them. They're they're inherent in our in our thinking, um, and so just being aware and 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 even discussing them explicitly is really important. So anyway, all those factors come into play, and in every step of the way, you're 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 have the potential for loss of fidelity in, in your discovery. I, I love it. I uh, totally agree. Hey, Greg, uh, Ari, go off to off topic and, and Ari, that gives you a little bit of time to think about what you're going to say next. I want to throw it to May just real quickly. May, what do you think the role is that product ops has in counseling or coaching product managers who are trying to do primary research? It depends if you have a UXR function. It depends who you have in your organization, because 
um, if you have a UXR function, you go ask them. <laughs> they're, they're a lot better at it than most people in product ops. Product ops are like, you don't have this, so you can come to us and we'll find out. But it's probably like, it depends who you have as product ops, how you've defined product ops. But generally speaking, it's like, we can help you navigate the situation. Um, we can find out what the best way is to do something. Or we might maybe, like, I, I know a couple of people who are in product ops who come from research ops, so they know how to do things. Mm -hmm. um, but, like, for me, I had a chance to work with an incredible UXR lead, and I learned all of that from her, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I wasn't going to implement UX research. I had no idea what UX research was. Like, the last, the, the company I worked for before had, like, one designer. Right, like so. Mm -hmm. So I think it's it's worthwhile just thinking about where people come from and acknowledging that you might not know, and that's okay, right? Mm -hmm. Take a look at your organization, see who's doing research well, um, and talk to them and see how you can bridge those gaps and think about how you can implement a system where we can do research better across the board. Yeah, it does seem that many product managers, as you know, in their gap filling role, are like, well. I suck at research, but I suck at it less than everybody else does. Or I suck at design, but I suck at it less than everybody else does. Um, so it is delightful to hear, you know, the answer is, no, let's actually have qualified people do research and let's actually have qualified people do design. And there's no reason why the product manager can't be actively engaged in those events, but it certainly is good to be working with somebody who is has experience doing real primary research. I, I think I, I want to add a note there that everyone can do research and everyone needs to do research, um, but we could we could learn, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, someone who is a skilled person is more likely to be able to teach than someone who is unskilled and read a book, right? Let's go back mm -hmm. to the beginning of this conversation. So uh, if you have those people available, look for them before you attempt to learn on your own or hire someone externally. Good answer. And I, I think for me, it, there's this thing, so many people don't break UX up into design and research. And I think that there's a huge un misunderstanding or lack of understanding of the power of UX researchers versus just designers uh, to do that type of stuff. So I love that you, you, you brought the UXR, May. Danielle, you got your hand raised. Then Ari, we're going to get to you. We're giving you a long time to think about it. And Clint, I'm going to let you give your two cents, add your two cents again, no uh, Danielle. Apologies in advance. Um, so I, yeah, I just wanted to comment real quickly on um, the whole discussion around uh, UX designers, UX researchers, product managers. Uh, I think that that is a really big gap in a lot of organizations, um, specifically the UXR piece. Um, designers are overloaded, product managers are overloaded. Um, and then all of a sudden you you would need this key person in there to help uh, fill you know some of that very limited bandwidth um, and they're just not there. So working together collaboratively with a UX designer as a product manager is a really great way if you don't have that specific resource. Um, early on in my career, I had the opportunity um, to work for uh, a, a large healthcare company and we didn't have UXR. It was kind of a new concept. We had just stood up the product management office. We were still trying to get buy-in from 
you know, the executives to get a budget for, <laughs> for these really key positions that we needed to grow into. Um, but what we knew we couldn't do was just kind of push it to the side and say, oh, we'll just do the research later. Um, so we made a really concerted effort, uh, the designers and, and product managers to um, teach ourselves and, and skill up and then and go at it together. And that worked out really well for a long time until we could prove that value of research. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh my gosh, let's hire like five UX researchers because this is, this is allowing us to go faster uh, build the right thing, go in the right direction, uh, and just make sure that we're like continually getting that feedback because the market shifts and changes so much and consumer preferences do as well. And exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, and I, I had a, a conversation on the Twitter with a, a UX thought leader and their view was that they wanted product management to be able to Fight where the UX person would fight for the user, the customer, product management needed to understand the viability for the business and be able to counterbalance. And they liked the fact that they could still advocate and fight for the user while product management would be able to, you know, help with the business viability stuff. So I love that. Thank you. Uh, Ari. Yeah, man, so much. Now that I've had so much time, I got to fill it with a lot of words. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the, the perspective that I'm taking, I would, oh my gosh, of course, someone rang the doorbell as soon as I uh, did that. <laughs> uh, let me come back to it. The combination of collaboration is super important, tooling and enablement, facilitating that work through product ops, and then also creating the right ecosystem and environment to give people time to practice that knowledge and, you know, turn it into something valuable instead of emphasizing, do the work, execute, do outputs versus thinking about the outcomes. Give me one second. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Clint, you, you shared some great insight at the beginning. You've just listened to a lot of really smart people talk about stuff. Any Anything that you want to add? Yeah. So I think one of the things that we haven't touched on is that as you do, as you do this research, you also have different audience, right? You've got the user, um, and that may be an operator-based person, but then you also have service. You've got their management layer. So I found that you may have very different needs or perspectives depending on the layer that you're talking to. So it's not always just the user, right? It could have a, there could be significant implementation, implement, implications, excuse me, above that relative to their management team or what the expectations are. So I think it's important when, when we do this that we have different, different people within the organization that we're talking to because you will get different feedback and there may be different priorities or different problems that they're trying to solve. So if you just look at one particular person or group, you may miss something at a higher level. So it's really making sure that, that you get engagement at the different levels or within the different functional disciplines as you're having these discussions to make sure that you're capturing all of the requirements relative to you know, what, are, what, are the, what are the challenges that they're trying to solve. Because I can guarantee you they'll be very different at an operator level versus at a, at a management level. No question about that whatsoever. And, and, and that's the thing, the key thing, as you get into the buying process, understanding all the different buyer personas, who's going to implement, hell, IT, right? What regulations they have about, I was talking to somebody who had a SaaS product and they had a client who didn't allow SaaS, right? They needed an on-prem version just to do it. And, and you, so many of those things you don't get just from the users. 
great, great take on that. Steve, any last thoughts before we move uh, to the poll? My little mute me button didn't work. Sorry. Um, so much good stuff in there. Um, I, I just finished rereading the mom test. And the, the thing that really stuck with me this time was customers cannot predict the future. And we have, we have to stop asking them to. What they can do is remember the past. So tell me about a time when this problem occurred. What happened when the problem occurred? How much did it cost you when the problem occurred? But the question of would you like, you know, do you want this feature? Do you like this feature is erroneous. Um, and uh, to, to uh, glom on to what Clint, uh, Clint said as well, there are multiple kinds of buyers and there are multiple kinds of users and we need to understand them all. And this is one of the differences, I think, between product management and sales. Sales only cares about the buyer and they are right in doing so but we have to care about the bigger bunch, you know, the users as well. Totally get it. Uh, May. Uh, I, I think one of my favorite questions to ask during an interview is uh, in three years from now, what do you think the market looks like? And um, I think, and I don't use that as a way to predict the future. I use that as a way to see how good our sales enablement is or like our, our sales messaging is because half the time they'll tell me things that already exist in the product. So um, I, I think it's important to like, yeah, you're asking them to talk about the future, but it's also just like, what do you know about the current state? Because half the time they don't. Um, so it, it's an interesting way of looking at um, just how good your sales team are doing. To add to that point, May, I, I saw a survey last week that said only 50% of Americans have ever heard of chat GPT. Wow. 50% of Americans have never even heard of it. That's that's not surprising. I mean, if you look at where where it's coming from and then the kind of the the age gap in some of these areas, people are just, you know, and they're afraid of it. Right? Nobody wants to, they're they're nervous right. about it. Right. Right. It's gonna have a yeah. tremendous and, impact on our industries. And this week I heard of, of a, a manager who was interviewing a candidate who was actively using ChatGPT during the interview. And he could see his eyes moving as he was reading things off the screen and he was ticking them off as well. The first thing is, and the second thing is, and in conclusion, and uh, I, I thought that, so, I mean, well done on, 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 I guess, both parts, you know, the, the audacity of the candidate and the, uh, uh, the mindfulness of the interviewer. But still, I mean, I, to, to just, you know, to, to make May's point again, it's like customers don't know your product nearly as well as you do. And the assumption that, you know, they're looking three years out and saying, I wish we had the product that we currently have is a really interesting insight. It completely and totally is. Uh, we're going to get to the poll now, and I hope we can get to the question. So I'm going to probably not spend too much time on the poll, although we want to spend a little time here. The question we asked in the poll is, what is the hardest thing about market discovery? Finding the time to actually do it got zero votes. I thought that was interesting. Uh, getting access to customers to talk with, that actually had 58% of the vote. So that was where we, we saw it. Actually doing the interview discovery, 8%. Analyzing your findings for trends, 
uh, 8%. Uh, in other, it depends, 25%. And Danielle and May are, are part of that other, it depends. And I want to just give you a quick chance to, you know, explain your other uh, before we talk about uh, some of the other options. I'll start. Getting access to customers to talk to is a B2E problem or a B2B B problem. I, I don't think it's a B2C problem. I don't think it's a B2B problem. Uh, so I, I could not use that as a wide range um, answer. The other thing I think is important to address is translating what you learn because half the time wherever you are you're it's most likely that the product manager is doing research on your own and getting mm -hmm. that information across to other people in a consumable digestible shareable interpretable manner is very 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 difficult especially if it's like a big project and you're talking to like a hundred people like how do you get them to understand um, with the time that you have with that hundred people? Or like, what is that format? Like that sharing interpretation layer is very, very difficult. No, I completely agree. Uh, I love it. And, and you know, that, that echoes with what you talked about in the first answer as well about the importance of sharing. And if you're not, if you're not sharing it, why are you doing it? Uh, if you're not helping people learn. Danielle, I have to admit when you wrote your answer, uh, I'm like, shh. I should have that's you know getting the uh, organizational support and budget to do it. Uh, I, I, that made a ton of sense. I, sh I wish I had uh, had that as one of the options. So you had me at hello. Any other uh, context you want to put on that? Um, so it's not it's not the end all be all if your organization um, doesn't necessarily see the value or importance of market discovery or probably more importantly, continual market discovery. Um, because what I found is a lot of times companies will throw an absurd amount of money. They'll hire out a consulting group. They'll do this really like, I'd like to call it good, but I don't know that it always is. But they do a really uh, very complex research and they come back with these findings and you know, paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for this. And then it's just like, oh, cool, we know now. And this is because we just spent so much money on it. Now we don't have any budget for the next three years to do this. Um, so it makes it really hard because you have to keep doing it and keep, you know, you have to keep in step with your markets. Um, you can go rogue. I mean, if somebody doesn't support it, you can still find, you know, low lift, low tech, low budget ways to get in touch with your market and do some sort of discovery. And that's better than nothing. Um, and you can always refer back to it as evidence and uh, as a, you know, support to the, the ask for budget and time to continue to do this type of work. Or you can use the previous findings of, of these big studies and, and disprove them as well. And that can also be a really good catalyst for hey, what was true three years ago is the opposite now. So like we need to do something because we continue to see this data. We continue to see this feedback. We continue to see these results or outcomes. No, I, I love it. And, and, and in finding the down low ways to do it under the radar type stuff, that's when I would accept the invitations to go on sales calls, right? Uh, 
that's when I would find a partner to ask me to, to do a panel or speak at their conference. And then all of a sudden, all their, all my users are there. And I can, talk. I used to, people used to joke about Grant's boondoggles to Las Vegas, right? I'd go to a conference conference and I would actually do three dinners. I'd do a four o'clock, you know, drinks and light uh, appetizers. I'd do a six o'clock dinner and an eight o'clock late stuff. And I could just through that, I could get you know, a series of conversations with customers. And, and sometimes you need to go on the DL uh, and find cheap ways to do it, but you need to find ways to do it. Uh, Ari, I'm moving up the, 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 the poll results. I believe you're the one that said analyzing findings for trends. Is that you or is that somebody oh, else? Oh, um, I think I did that one and then I meant to switch it to other. But, okay. But the reason I did that is because I've actually been doing a ton of like, the past two weeks research uh, in my organization about, you know, where products manager skill sets are, where the gaps are. Um, one thing I'm realizing is I'm seeing a lot of uh, user-centric mindsets of people saying, hey, we need to care about the customer and we need to do user research and interviews. But what I'm not seeing is an ability to take that data and the research they collected and turn it into anything useful. So they yeah. say, yeah, we did the user research, but then they don't actually use what they learned to inform the roadmap or synthesize or get insights. So I think that's a big gap area that um, I think is assumed that if you're doing re user research, you're also using the user research to for, for good, for value. But I think realistically, that doesn't actually always happen. Yeah, I, I get it, makes sense. Uh, Calvin, moving up, you said actually doing the interviews and discovery. Uh, you think yeah, that's the I, hardest? I don't know that, you know, in, in, in retrospect, I don't know if that this is the hardest part, but I do know that I've worked at several companies where product managers never went out and, and talked to talked to customers. They didn't do yeah. any, any market discovery. And I, I, I found that as, especially those that have come out in, a, in, a, in a, out of areas that are more that are more technology based that they just didn't see that it just didn't occur to them and they would they could just ask chat gpt <laughs> yeah 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 well the other issue too is qualitative versus quantitative right so you i mean we used to have this fight all the time where you just send out you know you get a your contact list you send out 100 emails and maybe you get a five percent you know response rate that's good. You get some level of insight from that. So, but but having that qualitative, having that discussion in front of the customer, it provides you with completely different insight because we all know one question will lead to another question. And I'll admit, you know, you, you may have started here, but then you've taken a detour over here, which is highly valuable because now you've uncovered something that you'd never really find in a true quantitative, you know, 20 question email to your customer. Yeah. So for me, getting out to the customer is always the key thing. And I think that yeah. To piggyback on what Chad said earlier, it really depends on who you go with and when. I typically didn't like to bring the UX guys out too early because then they get all fired up and they're off running in a direction before you've got kind of a, a direction set where then you want to bring them in. But engineering, I definitely I like bringing them out right out of the box because a lot of times you'd be surprised how many engineers have never been to a site where their products are being used. So they have no idea what the good, the bad, the ugly is relative to, to the designs that they've implemented or designs that they're looking to make go forward changes with. No, com completely agree. You mentioned Chad. Chad, I think you were one of the people who voted for getting access to customers to talk with. Is that right? 
Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I've done dozens of primary research projects in my career. And uh, even when I'm working with an organization that has, you know, supposedly great access to their customers and thousands of customers, that always ends up being the long pole in the tent on the initiative, mm -hmm. like getting access, getting people who have, have access to help you get access. Um, and what I find is that sometimes it's easier just to go outside of a customer base and use a recruitment firm that brings in, you know, the personas that you're looking for, and you're going to pay, you know, 500 to $1,000 per hour per person, but it goes faster and you still get really quality data. But well, yeah, it, it's, it's surprising that it's hard to get access to your own customers because, the, you know, there's gates up. The sales team doesn't want you to talk to them. The account management team doesn't want you to talk to them. Um, that customer is, you know, going through an upgrade, so you can't talk to them. There's just so many barriers come out sometimes. And uh, yeah, I do find it's one of the hardest parts. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, you know, I've used uh, things like Respondent IO recently, and I found that it was, you know, in a four day work week type concept, if I'm spending way too much time of my expensive time paying $500 or whatever to have a recruit recruiter find you the right people can, can actually make a lot of sense. And I, and I did read somebody saying, in a B2B or B2E world, you know, you're paying for their expertise. These interviews are helping you get expertise from them. You should be compensating them. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a change in my philosophy over the, over the past where I used to be. Uh, Dominic, you also voted for getting access. Anything to add? Yeah, I mean, uh, getting access, I think it all depends on the structure of the company as well. Um, you, you, you may have uh, organizations that are uh, structured with uh, business development or segment managers or market developers and whatnot that are not um, per se in the sales organization, right? And obviously um, relationships may be different. And I, I think it's, it's important to uh, be able to uh, not only talk to the customer, the user, but also uh, within the ecosystem. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you have a complex solution or you're building a complex solution, right? Offering, you know, you, you may have multiple personas to really, you know, listen to, right? So that yep. uh, you deliver, uh, the, you know, a solution that brings value to both the customers and, and, and the business. No, I love it. Uh, Saeed, you did not vote, at least when I pulled this thing. I'm not, you don't need to pick one of these, you know, off the top of your head. What do you think is the hardest thing about market discovery? Uh, I do think the analysis is probably the hardest in the sense that um, I think getting customer access is hard, but, you know, like if you can't get customer access, you can't do anything. But I think if, assuming you did get access to customers, analysis is hard. It's, it's generally qualitative analysis. We're not taught how to do it. Most of us anyway. I learned from a couple of really good UX people who worked at Cooper and mm -hmm. they they had it like they knew what they were doing. And this is back in 2004 or something. And we did a big research project and, you know, it's the first time you saw post-it notes on walls and all that stuff. But, um, you know, it takes time, right? Like, I, I don't think spending three months with them taught me how to do it right, but doing it, you know, five times myself, I learned a lot. So I think I think it's a skill that, improves over time but you know a lot of times people start doing discovery 
they don't really get good results for analysis because they're not really good at it themselves. The company doesn't find any insight. It's like, oh, well, we knew all that, or this isn't valuable or whatever. So you, you end up not being able to improve. And, and I've seen, you know, like, it's just that cycle again, like the questions you ask, the answer you get, the analysis you do, like it, it can be really good or it can be really bad. And, and unless you do it over and over and really learn and think and discuss, um, it, it it's very difficult. I, I, I think it's one of the most difficult things, quite honestly, uh, for, for anyone like product managers or designers or whoever to do. I would agree. No, I, the interpretation yeah. of the results are, are, are a real challenge especially if you've got different groups, right? If you've got UX, you've got engineering, you've got service, everybody's got a different perspective on it. And you're kind of the gatekeeper on how do you manage all that? And who's who's the winner? How do you ultimately make that decision is, uh, you know, and then ultimately if you're the product manager or the, the director or VP, it's on you. So, you know, there's a reluctance to to dive in and make that decision. So sometimes that's that's also an issue in that it's, it's, you know, people, people don't want to make a decision because they're concerned about what that's going to do. Is it a, you know, is it a career limiting type of issue? So that's, that's another thing that has a challenge with regards to the analysis. Yeah. And I'll go back to uh, Chad and, and May from the beginning. If you don't scope it properly, you may have multiple personas or multiple segments in that discovery. And all of a sudden trends you're seeing may not even be real real because you're seeing trends across segments and personas that may not even, you know, matter. Uh, I think the scoping of it. Steve, I, what do you think the hardest thing, again, you don't have to go with one of these things. What do you think the hardest is? I think the hardest thing is convincing product managers and the people they work with that this is an important aspect of their jobs. Making getting them to make time for this. I, I can't imagine what it must be like to say, I've been in this job for a year and I've met a, never met a customer. I mean, how can you do any of the rest of your job? And yet many product managers feel like they have to be smarter than the customer or smarter than the market. Uh, so I think the first one is finding time or making time to, and making this a priority. I love that. Are you waving to me, Saeed? Are you raising I, your hand? I'm trying to raise my hand, but it's not registering. Like Zoom isn't picking it up. <laughs> but uh, no, I just wanted to say like, yeah, I, I agree with Steve. It, it, it's hard, but I always, whenever I hear things like that, I always come back to where the hell is the product leader? Like, why, why is there no leadership in this? Like, what are they doing? Because they should be the ones, even if the product managers are too busy doing internal stuff, they should be the ones who are saying, hey, like, this is important. This is why it's important. They should be communicating it, you know, to the other leadership members, but also communicating it down into the org. And I, I just find that to be really problematic that you don't hear that from people who are, you know, supposedly product leaders. No, I, I yeah, hold them to, to responsible to it. And maybe this also goes back to the conversation we had about what is product management. Many product leaders don't know how to, do the strategic business stuff because uh, they haven't come from it. Uh, but that's has been past calls and I'm sure it will be future calls. Uh, what a great conversation. I mean, an amazing group of people to have this conversation with. We're going to you know, do our key takeaways. Uh, what's your biggest learning or takeaway from this conversation? Dominic, I'm going to start with you. Um, I think I'll, I'll go back to uh, you know what Chad was saying early on. It's all about 
you know, the detail and, and the focus, right? Scope uh, of what we're trying to accomplish. All right, uh, scoping it properly is, is so key. Uh, Ari, outside of uh, muting your doorbell while you're on our call, what's your biggest takeaway? Um, I, I think there is a tech over the last comment. One of the biggest things is it's, it can't be just on the product manager themselves. They need to be in an environment that knows how to give space to do these things and how to prompt the right people to work together and have leaders that will ask the right questions and care about setting goals and aligning on like success criteria uh, that can help drive a more concerted effort. So maybe my biggest takeaway is there's a lot of work on the setting up the right environment that needs to happen for yeah. this product discovery and stuff becoming. I, I I love it. You've actually, I, I'm going to do an audible at the end of this and change our topic for next week because we didn't get into some stuff I wanted to get into from that. Uh, Clint. Um, a bunch of, I mean, great conversations. It's, uh, it, it's refreshing to hear so many different perspectives, but I think an important one is collaboration relative to getting the right group of people that are there listening to the customer um, and then really understanding the different levels of the organization. I think that's key because you can miss a significant point by not having the right conversation with the right, for, with the right persona. No, I love it. Uh, Alvin. I, I think the thing, the, the kind of, I've kind of rethought what that hardest part is. And I hadn't even considered that, that analytics would be difficult. So I need to, I need to kind of roll that around a little bit. Uh, I, me too, actually, me too. Yeah. I, I get that. Uh, Chad. You know, it's something that Steve just said, and I was going to chat this in, but what's amazing to me is that this is still a problem in product organizations. And this has been the problem 30 years for later. 20, 30, I don't know how many years. I mean, I first learned about this problem when I was a product manager in 2004. And it had already been a 10 or 15 year old problem then. And it's yep. still top of mind for this group and guys like Steve and everybody here, we still see it in our organizations that this is still a problem, making it a priority, getting time to do it. And therefore even then, you know, next step training product managers or training people how to do this. Um, it keeps guys like me in business, which is nice. But at the same time, you would think after three decades, we'd be a little further along in solving this problem. But that's the biggest takeaway for me, honestly, is that we're still in this state of, you know, wanting and hoping that product managers can do a better job and have more time at this. So I'll leave it. I think, it also, I think it also depends on the structure of the organization, right? I mean, I've worked in organizations where even though there's product management, engineering still has, from my opinion, far too strong a recommendation yeah. within the lines of business, right? So. You know, it's it's either the non-invented here syndrome. If you identify a product gap and you want to leverage a partner product, which I've done it, I'm sure you guys have as well, leveraged OEM products. Some organizations are very open to non-invented here, and other ones are brutal. Where literally, if it's non-invented here, they'll shoot you down immediately. So that's another uh, it's another uh, element uh, of something. That was my first product leadership experience. Was at a, a non-invented here syndrome place. So I completely and totally get it. Uh, great, great point, Clint. Uh, Saeed. Um, so I think I think 
the the cultural problem is a big one. Well, you know, just it's been it's been decades, but I think I think you know the 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 thing is that business will go along, right? Whether you you have all the data that you need or not. Like people will make decisions, people move forward. And and you can get into a bad loop if you if you don't bring in new information because other people will, right? If yep. product doesn't do it, sales will or marketing will or executives will. And <clears throat> I think breaking that is really hard. And again, it, to me, it goes back to sort of product leadership to change that culture. And there's no A-B test, right? You can't go, hey, let's do it without the data. Let's do it with the data and see which one works better, right? <laughs> Like, you, no, you know, I, I think that's the biggest challenge. You know, we we think we know and then we execute, but there's no yeah. there's no way to validate. No, I, I, I love that. Say thank you. Uh, Danielle. Um, so I think my key takeaway, this is kind of stemming off of what Chad had mentioned is, yes, this is still a problem. It's shocking that it is. Um, but I I guess it's more common commentary than anything. Um, I just hope that in the product world, folks don't get too discouraged by having some of these barriers and, and roadblocks in the way of, of being able to do research and discovery because you can, you can do it and you can get really great insight and data without having big budgets or top-down support or you know an organizational wide level like uh, collaboration, um, but you have to get really creative with it. Um, so I guess my my key takeaway is I hope more folks start to think outside of the box in terms of, okay, well, if you're telling me, no, I can't go do this, or no, you're not going to give me the money to do it. How do I still reach my people? How do I get this yeah. insight? Because, you know, you can get super creative um, and people like to talk. So if you, if you can get them somehow, some way, uh, you know, open the floodgates, get the information, synthesize it, and then do something with it. Um, statistically speaking, you don't need to go out and interview thousands of people. Um, so that, you know, there's always some some good things to look forward to in there. No, I, I, I love it. And, and as we can tell from these conversations, people do like to have conversations. May. On the flip side of what Danielle just said, um, product leaders, are your product managers being creative? Like, do they have to be creative to like do their job? Because if so, that's a bad thing. <laughs> you know, like what, why can't we make the system easier for our teams to do their jobs without needing to figure out what is the process that would work here? Um, so, you know, Yes, if you are already in a bad place and you don't have power, sure, you can go and be creative, but that takes time, that takes effort, that is labor. So if we can empower people systematically to be able to go do market research so that they can do their job, so that we can build the right products and grow, um, I think it's worthwhile putting in that effort to think about what in the system needs to change. Uh, said by a true product ops person. <laughs> Steve. When you go out into the world, hold hands. Always yep. take a friend when you go visit a customer. Uh, they'll hear things you won't hear. Uh, you'll hear things they won't hear. 
And it's a whole lot more fun to go out. Uh, and to quote Yogi Berra, you can observe a lot just by watching. I love that, Steve. Uh, and my big takeaway is this topic was too big for one week. So I'm going to postpone what I was going to do on Monday. I won't even give you the topic. Here's what the question is going to be on Monday in the community. We're, we're calling an audible. How do you get your organization, leadership, sales, everyone, to understand the value of market discovery? We've talked about this as an issue, right? Chad said it's been 30 years, right? How do we finally crack this nut? How do we do this, right? And yes, May, we know the answer, but how, we, let's talk constructively about, we can say, I told you so, but how do we get them to get it? How do we get them to see it? Uh, so I guess in this way, I'm giving you the money question before I give you the topic. I'll have to come up with a way to change this topic for, for next week, whatever it may be. But there's so much more to be said on this, I think. Let's make it a, a two, a back-to-back -back special dual episode of uh, conversations. Uh, with that said, God, we do this every week. Uh, such vital conversations. I mean, I'm learning, I'm growing. We're adding great voices, right? Clint and Chad, you guys just came in strong. Ari, you know, for the second one, Saeed having you back. Uh, Dominic and Calvin and Danielle and May. God, I love each of your voices. Every time you're on this call, you bring so much. My partner, Steve. Uh, I mean, we do this. We do a topic of the week conversation pretty much every day, Steve and I, <laughs> on something. So uh, I just love working with you and having these conversations with everybody. And we do it every week. Uh, in the community Monday, the question goes, and you guys now know what Monday's question is. You can start writing your answers already. So when it go, posts up, you, you're ready. Uh, on Wednesday, the poll happens. And on Fridays, we have these amazing conversations, vital conversations, valuable conversations. And I grow and I learn and I make new friends. So thanks everybody for doing that. Uh, we'll see you guys next week in the community. Have a great weekend, everybody. Take care. Thanks for listening to Product Conversations brought to you by Product Group. Product Growth Leaders helps product leaders and their teams remove the chaos from product management and achieve product success on purpose. For more great content and to learn how we do this or to join the conversation, visit us at productgrowthleaders.com. If you haven't yet, go to your Apple, Android, or favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And join us next week for another episode.